Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Harry, Steve, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, and who? Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's Twain, and Ned the Lad, Mary, Bessie, James, Evane, Charlie, Charlie, James again, William and Mary, Anna Gloria, four Georges. Yes, we come to the first of our Georges, George the first. I could have started with a different rhyme. I could have... Actually, it's not a rhyme at all. It's a mnemonic. No plan like yours to study history wisely, which is the um, a way of remembering the royal dynasties. No for Norman, plan for Plantagenet, like for Lancaster, yours is York, two is Tudor, study, Stuarts, history, Hanover, wisely, Windsor. Yes, we have moved on from the Stuarts into the Hanoverians via this kind of slightly bizarre system where in order to ensure a Protestant monarch is on the throne, the Stuarts are sidelined. And, you know, if you read history books, particularly popular history books, they'll say, oh, the British skipped 50 more viable contenders to the throne, or it's 52 or it's 54. Never quite settled on a number, and nobody ever tells you who these people are. If I had the time and the brain space and could be bothered, I could maybe try and work out who they are, but I have a slight suspicion that this number has been plucked out of the air at some point, and it's sort of stuck. But yes, I mean, it goes back to James I of Scotland, who himself could be seen as an intruder, he was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. So he hadn't come down the official Tudor line, uh, Henry VIII to Mary I, to Edward VI, then down to Elizabeth, 
because neither Mary Elizabeth nor Edward had any surviving children. So the succession went through Elizabeth's great rival, Mary Queen of Scots, who was descended from one of Henry VII's daughters. So, you know, it's a very tangled, zigzaggy kind of line of succession here. So it comes down to James, and he has a daughter called Elizabeth and a surviving son called Charles, who becomes Charles I. Um, so Charles continues the Stuart dynasty of James. And the Stuarts seem to have a bit of a problem that, although they manage to produce illegitimate children via mistresses, they're not very good at producing legitimate children. Charles II has no surviving legitimate children. He has hundreds of illegitimate children who go on to become earls and dukes and lords or whatever. So the throne passes to his brother James, who is kicked out for his Catholic sympathies. And succession passes first to his eldest daughter, Mary, who marries William of Orange, the Dutchman. They're unable to produce any surviving children. Mary's sister Anne takes over, and despite having 17 pregnancies, none of her children survive past childhood. So Anne is the last of the Stuarts. But there is a complication, because King James II, by his second wife, Mary of Modena, has a son, James Stuart, another James Stuart. And that son, officially, by all rights, should have taken the throne on James II's death. But James had come out as a Catholic by this time, and his son James was brought up as a Catholic. And so the government of Britain said no. James's son James, young James, cannot be considered as a candidate for the monarchy. James the Younger, after this, is known as James the Pretender, the Pretender to the Throne implying that he has no real right to be there, even though of all these people he is the one with the most right. He is a legitimate son of King James II. But no, he's pretty much exiled to France, and he becomes a figurehead for the Jacobite movement. The Jacobites named after Jacobus, which is the Latin name for James. And James, the pretender, the old pretender, because his son Charles becomes the young pretender, Bonnie Prince Charlie, but the old pretender set up in France he's sort of nurtured by the French king but used as something of a pawn because the English can keep negotiating with uh, the French king and if the French king wants to make a deal with the British maybe a treaty or an alliance he'll say oh I'll, I'll get rid of James I'll sort him out for you and if he wants to go the other way and rattle the British cage, he will say, no, I'm supporting uh, James. He is the legitimate uh, king of England. And so there are all these allegiances and alliances through Europe of who is going to accept, first of all, Queen Mary and Queen Anne ahead of James. And later on, today's episode, George. So it is important for the British that the rest of Europe accept who is on the throne, or there will be continual uprisings and unrest. So Mary's gone, Anne's gone, the last of the Stuarts. So this brings us back to what I was talking about earlier, where the succession skips through 50-odd Stuart contenders who aren't considered as potential monarchs because they're all bloody Catholics. In 1689, Parliament had passed the Bill of Rights, 
which declared that no future monarch could be a Catholic or be married to a Catholic. And this was all confirmed in the 1701 Act of Settlement and remains in force to this day. And the Act of Settlement was this official declaration that the next in line to the throne after Queen Anne was this woman, Sophia Electress of Hanover. So how had they landed on this slightly obscure German woman as chief candidate to be our next monarch? Well, it goes all the way back to James I's daughter, Elizabeth Stuart, sister of Charles I. Now, if you remember, this is a few episodes back now, but she married one of these Star Wars characters, Frederick Elector Palatine. You have all these weird noble titles in Europe. And a lot of this weirdness and confusion comes in because a huge chunk of Europe for a long time has been called the Holy Roman Empire. And it still is at this time. It's essentially Germany. But it doesn't always cover all of Germany. It sometimes expands and takes over other areas. So places like Austria and Hungary. But it is this sort of power block in Europe. We also have the Habsburg power block. There's a northern branch kind of between France and Germany and Holland. And there's the southern branch, which is the Spanish Habsburgs. Now, I've only just worked out what this title of elector means. Because the Holy Roman Emperor is an elected position. It is not a familial dynastic position. It's a bit like being the Pope. And in fact, originally, the Holy Roman Emperor was a sort of version of the Pope. But it has become a political post entirely rather than the actual Pope who's based in Rome, which is obviously a religious post, although politics does come into it. So... The Holy Roman Emperor, the ruler of this sort of confederation of states who are all um, part of the empire, is elected. And only certain powerful people from certain states are allowed to be involved in this election, and they are known as electors. So everybody is always wanting to be an elector because, you know, we're dealing with power factions here. If you get your man on the throne as Holy Roman Emperor, then he will look favourably on your little state, your little part of the empire. Um, so just as in any country, you get different political factions, different groups vying for power and vying to elect the Holy Roman Empire. So it's a good position to be as an elector. OK, so that's how it works in theory, and that's how it always used to work. But it has to be said that by this time, for about 300 years, members of the Habsburg family have pretty much sat on the throne. So even though I said the position of Holy Roman Emperor was not a dynastic familial one, by this time it kind of is. But it's still an important and powerful title to be an elector. So Elizabeth marries one of these electors, Frederick V, Elector Palatine. Palatine is an area within the empire, I think based around the Rhine. And Elizabeth, if you remember, she became known as the Winter Queen because Frederick was uh, encouraged by other people within the empire to take over uh, uh, one of the other states. I'm not going to go back and check where it was. But they went in there and they lasted through the winter before they were booted out by the Holy Roman Emperor himself, who didn't want them there. 
and whilst they were away, Frederick's actual home base got taken over by someone else. So Elizabeth and Frederick become kind of stateless. But they have a daughter called Sophia, who becomes Electress of Hanover. Hanover being one of the other states within the Holy Roman Empire. And she marries the guy in charge, Ernest Augustus, or Ernst August. And in the act of succession, when the British are looking who's going to take over after Anne, they settle on Sophia. She's been lobbying for this position. She's been trying to come over to the English court and trying to state her case. The English court, first of all, under William and secondly, under Anne, don't want her hanging around and creating a new kind of rival base within London. So she's she's held at arm's length, but it is decided that, all right, yes, when Anne dies, Sophia will take over. Now, Sophia is older than Anne, but she is considerably fitter. Anne was was riven by illness and disease and ill health all her life. Sophia seems to have been a tough old war horse. Um, and she stays over in Hanover fighting her cause. Anne gets iller and iller and Sophia is rubbing her hands thinking, finally, finally, I'm going to be Queen of England. And then actually only a few weeks before Anne dies. Sophia is taking a walk in one of her parks. There's a sudden downpour. She takes shelter, but she gets chilled to the bone and she dies soon after, before ever taking the British throne. So we could have had a Queen Sophia, but she just missed it. At which point her son George becomes heir to the British throne. There's a slight sort of air of bewilderment, probably, from George. He had been to England. He had this visit when Anne was still a teenager, and there were some rumours that he had come over to London to be sort of sounded out as a possible uh, husband for Anne. It's, It's disputed whether that was the case. Because in the end, it, it wasn't necessarily the best marriage for either party. As far as the Stuarts were concerned, Hanover was not a big, important state. It was this sort of pretentious little principality. And as far as the Hanoverians were concerned, Anne was the daughter of James II, who was a Catholic and therefore likely to be shunned, which would mean his daughters weren't the greatest marriage prospect in the world. So George has had a glimpse of the English court, but suddenly here he is transplanted from his native Hanover and plonked on the English throne. And when I came to this, I was thinking, great, we're going to have a bit of fun here. George is a figure of fun. He was this um, slightly tubby, short German fellow who couldn't speak a word of English, wasn't interested in running the country, just liked playing cards with his mistresses um, and and spent most of his time back in Hanover. And actually, the truth is a little bit more subtle than that, sadly, because I can't have as much fun with George as I was hoping. Um, and I've sort of slightly warmed to him a bit, finding out more about him. And it seems that he was, in many ways, the victim of propaganda, This funny thing had happened towards the end of the 1600s, the 17th century. There had been a cock-up in Parliament and the Licensing Act hadn't been 
properly renewed. And this was restrictions on newspapers, on pamphleteers about what they were and weren't allowed to publish. And suddenly there was this free for all. People could publish and write whatever they wanted. Now, obviously, if they went too far, became traitorous or treasonous or openly attacked the monarch or whatever, that would lead to trouble. But you were allowed to poke fun at them. You were allowed to print these scandal sheets. And it's through the Hanoverian period that we have the rise of the sort of the political cartoon and stuff like that, of the printing presses making these humorous engravings and things. So George was partly the victim of the press, the gutter press, the tabloid press. He was an easy target. He was German. He didn't really speak English when he arrived in England. He made efforts to, to, to get on top of it. He was better by the time he died, but he never really mastered it. I mean, can you imagine how difficult that must have been? It's like people who buy holiday homes in Europe and they, they do evening classes in like French or Italian or something because they really want to keep up with what's going on there and be able to talk to their builders who are renovating this ruin that they've bought or whatever. I want to really feel that they're part of the country. But, you know, particularly in later life, it's quite hard to learn a new language. And George was in his 50s when he came to the throne. I think at that point he was the eldest monarch ever to come to the throne. And... You know, it's hard enough <laughs> trying to renovate a house in a country whose language you don't really speak. But imagine coming over and say, right, you're king now. Um, go on, be king, rule the country. And you don't know the language. It's like one of those terrible stress dreams <laughs> that you have. Um, it didn't seem to particularly bother George. He got on with it. And actually, he did do pretty well. And the proof of that is the fact that he remained on the throne till he died and that his son took over. And this was by no means a given because it was extraordinary that we've got this German monarch sitting on our throne. So I'll just backtrack a bit, fill in some of the details. He was born in 1660 in Hanover. He died in 1727, aged 67. Not a bad age for a British monarch. And he ruled just short of 13 years. His full German name was George without an E, which as far as I can tell is still pronounced George, George Ludwig. And I thought when I was researching this, oh, I better find out what his surname was. He doesn't seem to have had a surname. So I'm not quite sure how this worked. But yes, he was George Ludwig. But when he came to England, he was um, told quietly, you'll need to anglicise that, George. So he added an E to the George. And Ludwig, I didn't realise, is the German version of Louis. It's an old European name. So Louis is a sort of accepted name in England, so he becomes George Louis. And it's interesting that these Hanoverian names are still quite popular now amongst members of the British royal family. George, Louis, Sophie. He had a fairly conventional upbringing, nothing that exciting or important. Um, he seemed to have been quite interested in science all his life. But the thing he really seemed to have got into was military things. Certainly when he was in England, he spent a lot of time reorganising the military, supervising the military. And when he was still quite a young man, his father, Ernest Augustus, took George off to war with him. The Ottoman Empire had been expanding and pressing into Europe and there was an ongoing war called the Great Turkish War. 
I've only really touched on on this aspect in in some earlier episodes, but for a long time, large parts of Europe were much more preoccupied and concerned with what was happening to the east than they were worrying about little Britain, these kind of islands off to the west, because this huge expansion of the Ottoman Empire, they had taken over North Africa, they had moved up through the Balkans, they had got as far as Vienna, Uh, George was present at the Battle of Vienna, which marked the point where the war turned against the Turks in favour of the Europeans, and the westward expansion of the Turkish Empire was finally halted. But Ernest Augustus was keen that George learned about military matters, because in these Germanic states nothing was safe, nothing was certain, and Ernst thought that George would benefit from learning about the army and how warfare worked. And he certainly got a taste for it, which spilled over into a love of hunting. But because Hanover was slightly precarious, and also the other thing was in in Hanover, as in a lot of these German states, is they didn't have the same laws of succession as we do in England, whereby, you know, if you have two brothers, the eldest takes the throne and their offspring are next in line. It wasn't as clean cut as that in Europe. Territory could be divided up among brothers. So Ernst was always trying to shore up Hanover and hold it together. And so he wanted a good political marriage for his son, George. And he arranged for him to marry his first cousin, Sophia Dorothea of Sella. Sella being part of the larger Hanoverian state. I'm calling it Hanover just to keep things simple. Its proper full title was the Duchy of Brunswick-Lundberg. Now, Sella was ruled by one of George's uncles. So by marrying his daughter, Sophia, George's cousin, it held everything together. George did have a bit of a kind of ding-dong with his uncles over who was going to rule these different bits. But George did manage to come out on top and unified Hanover particularly with this marriage to Sophia, got his uncles out of the way. And then I think they changed the laws of succession so that his family could hang on to that. Nobody is making any pretense that this is any kind of love match. It's purely political. George and Sophia Dorothea don't seem to even really like each other very much, but they do knuckle down and manage to produce two children, a daughter and a son. Now, George is often accused of being a bit dull and unimaginative. So you can imagine the conversation that he had with his wife. Oh, George, what are we going to call our daughter? I know, I know. Let's call her Sophia Dorothea. Right. Uh, The same as me, yeah? Yeah. And what about our son? Uh, How about George? That's a good name. So having produced a healthy male heir, George and Sophia sort of (laughs) went their separate ways. George took a mistress and seemed to be quite happy with her. And Sophia took a lover, a Swedish count called Philip Christoph von Königsmark, who was a colonel in the Hanoverian army. Now, powerful men at the time were expected to take mistresses and nobody batted an eyelid. It was very different for women. But if Sophia had been discreet, she might have got away with it. But she started living openly with Konigsmark. And, well, at the time, it was felt she was kind of rubbing George's nose in it. It's interesting because this 
the love affair between Sophia and the Swedish count sort of became one of these great romantic stories of queens and princesses and counts and whatever falling in love with each other and having these doomed affairs because it didn't end well. Konigsmark disappeared. Uh, disappeared in the South American sense. He was made to disappear. Nobody knows what happened to him. There was one story went around that he'd been cut up and hidden under the floorboards in the castle, which sounds highly unlikely. There was another more plausible story that went around that he'd been killed, his body weighted with stones, and he'd been chucked in the local river. But whatever the case, he was murdered and his body never came to light. It doesn't seem that George was directly involved in this. Certainly he didn't give any orders for this to happen, but members of his court went to work and got rid of Koenigsmark. At which point George officially separated from Sophia. Her son and her daughter were 11 and 8. They were taken away from her. She never saw them again. And she was essentially locked up in the castle of Alden, or Alden, where she remained for 33 years until her death in 1726. She was allowed to walk unaccompanied in the castle grounds and she was allowed out in a carriage as long as she was escorted by a, a sort of a team of bodyguards stroke jailers. And this was done with the agreement of Sophia's family. She'd become something of an embarrassment. She was got out of the way. George never spoke to her again, never saw her again. Um, so George did have this sort of dark stain on his past. Um, luckily, this had all happened out of sight in Hanover, but it was obviously well known in England what had happened. But yes, George's mother, Sophia, Electress of Hanover, died in 1714, aged 83. And the same year, George took his court over to England and arrived in London in 260 horse-drawn carriages that took three hours to pass by. He had his Hanoverian troops. He had his German courtiers. He also had a large Turkish contingent. I mentioned before how he, he'd got involved in the war against the Turks and he'd been very impressed by them. And so much so that he had a sort of inner circle of Turkish servants and advisers. So he was really trying to put on a show of power saying, look, I have arrived and I am bringing my exotic court with me. And a lot of people will tell you that on this procession, he was accompanied by his two mistresses, a fat one and a thin one. Uh, in some places, they're known as the elephant and the maypole. In other places, they're known as the elephant and castle. Um, the idea was that one was short and fat and the other was tall and thin. The truth of the matter is that one of them wasn't his mistress. That was a fat one. She was actually his half-sister via one of his father's affairs. And he seemed to have slightly taken her under the wing. And she became quite a close advisor to him. But with all these scandal rags and gossip sheets around, it was like, oh, yes, she's his mistress. He's sleeping with his half-sister. There was no evidence that he was because he was pretty much devoted to the so-called thin one, Melusine von der Schulenberg, which is interesting. You know, she was described as paper thin by someone. But if you look at 
paintings of her. And if you put them alongside paintings of Sophia, they actually look quite similar. Melusine, in none of the paintings, I mean, maybe they filled her out for the paintings, but she doesn't look thin at all. She is quite a stout, quite a formidable looking woman, actually. And then there's Sophia. But, you know, it made for a good joke and filled up a few columns in a scurrilous pamphlet. Oh, look at these two mistresses, a fat one and a thin one. <laughs> George pretty much lived with his mistress, Melusine von der Schulenberg, as husband and wife. And why they never actually married, I'm not quite sure. He was accused of having loads of mistresses. But actually, Melusine was pretty much it. He shacked up with her. He seemed he'd liked a quiet life. He was quite a private man. He was seen as being a bit awkward in public and a bit cold and distant and standoffish. But looking at him, I think he was a classic shy boy who grew up to be a classic shy man. And I'm quite shy myself. And this is often misconstrued as rudeness or brusqueness or whatever. Um, I mean, sometimes I am rude and brusque, but at the heart of it is shyness. And if you're not shy... It's very hard to explain how that works and people never really believe you. They just say, nah, Charlie, you're just, you're just rude. So George liked a quiet life, uh, sitting at home playing cards with Melusine. Now, the other reason for all this gossip is that you have these two powerful factions in British Parliament. You have the Tories, who were the kind of old school Stuart supporters. They essentially are saying, you know, we should stick to tradition. The Stuarts really should be in charge. I mean, it's difficult for them to fully come out as Jacobites. Um, but they're saying, really, it's not quite right that this George of Hanover has come over. And then you have the Whigs who are very keen on George coming over because as they see it, they get George over to England. He has come at their invitation. It is an act of parliament that has allowed this. And they're thinking, OK, we're going to really be the guys in power and the king will do what we want. The Tories still stick to this idea of the, the king being this sort of divinely appointed thing. I mean, actually, George wasn't as much of a pushover as they had hoped. And through his reign, the same as through Anne's reign, He's got these two factions that he's, he's not necessarily playing them off against each other. But at one point, one side is, is more powerful and the other point, the other. And they're all wanting to use the king and he's wanting to use them. So often these political factions are writing these pamphlets themselves and getting them published under a pseudonym. They're certainly feeding information to the tabloids. I'll call them the tabloids. They weren't called that at the time, but let's think of them as that. And they were using them. So it was often in someone's interests to mock the king, to undermine him. And so these stories went around and people were making jokes about his mistresses. And there was also, it has to be said, a huge amount of xenophobia. People didn't like it. Why suddenly are these Germans ruling the country? And when he was crowned, there was over 20 riots in different towns and cities around England. The local people furious, up in arms. This was stoked by the Jacobites, by the Stuart supporters. But these rebellions were put down pretty swiftly and they didn't come to anything. George knew from the start he had to be firm, 
Firm but fair was the image he wanted to put across. He didn't want to go around arresting people and executing them, but he did want them to settle down. And he must have been very worried. And the British government, who had worked this all out and put him in place, must have been worried. It was a shaky position to have this non-English speaker on the throne. There were also problems in Parliament that people were suspicious that he would be more dedicated to looking after Hanover than he was to England. Because you have to remember, he was still elector in Hanover. He was still in charge there. He was still plugged into what was going on in Europe and the Holy Roman Empire. He didn't want Hanover to be invaded. So he legitimately did have a leg to stand on. And he said, look, I can't just let Hanover go. And one of the other stories they say about him is, oh, he spent most of his reign in Hanover. He was never in England. He never learned English. Actually, he only spent about a quarter to a third of his reign that he spent in Hanover. Whereas King William, William III from William and Mary, spent over half of his reign back in Holland and in Europe supervising these various wars. So it's perhaps slightly exaggerated this idea that he was just a German who didn't care about the British and wanted to be over in Hanover. He basically had to be there. But as I say, the, you know, the British people didn't immediately warm to him and take him to their hearts. They called him a turnip and... <laughs> And at his coronation, a spectator was arrested. He'd stuck a turnip on a stick and was waving it at the coronation procession. And he was arrested. So, you know, this idea of the protesters at King Charles's coronation procession waving their banners, not my king, not my king. That was not a first by any means. Maybe they should have brandished turnips on sticks. But as usual... Most of the British people couldn't give a toss. They just wanted to get on with their lives. You know, the farmers wanted to farm their land. The merchants wanted to be able to carry on trading. The peasants at the bottom had never had much of a say in anything. So what they wanted was there not to be another civil war. They didn't want their sons to all be slaughtered. They didn't want to have to be conscripted and sent abroad. They didn't want their houses and land burned. So they would be happy as long as things were reasonably safe and secure. And, and they were. George managed to keep things under control. I mean, the very next year in 1715, there was a Jacobite uprising led by Lord Mar in Scotland, which was supported by some Spanish troops who had been enlisted by James, the old pretender. So he was sort of charging around Europe, trying to find people who would support him in invading England and taking the throne that was rightfully his. But in the end, very few Spanish troops turned up and Lord Mar didn't gather the support that he'd been hoping for. And when James Stuart, the old pretender, arrived, he was as much of a foreigner as George. And worse than being German, he was basically French. He'd spent most of his life at the French court. He'd taken on all these French ways. He doesn't seem to have been the sort of man who inspired people to follow him or, or even inspired people to like him very much. And so he was a useless figurehead for this rebellion. And it was very quickly put down and finally smashed to pieces at the Battle of Glen Shields. And that was really the only major attempt that James, the old pretender, made to get the throne back during George I's reign. So George comes to the throne and he's having to contend with the push and pull of the Whigs and the Tories. He also falls out massively with his son, George. It seemed to be a thing with the Hanoverians that 
Each successive father hated their son. Each successive son hated their father. Right the way through to William, really. Um, Some people have said it was because young Prince George was the son of the hated Queen Sophia, who George I had locked up. Or it may be just, you know, they just didn't like each other. And it actually is often the case, if you look at these dynasties down through time, that the kings grow suspicious of their eldest son, thinking, oh, they're going to try and take over from me and get rid of me before my time. And the sons are thinking, I wish they'd get out of the way so I could get on the bloody throne. Um, so it is always a problem, but it, it, it was really bad with the, with the Georgians. It got so bad that George banished his son from the royal court and Prince George set up his own sort of rival court at Leicester House. And so it backfired on King George because this rival court became a sort of focus for anyone who was discontented with the king, any of the politicians who thought, all right, we'll we'll get a new power base through Prince George. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in Parliament during this time of various different figures stepping forward and taking power, losing power. Uh, But the man that negotiated it best and ended up most powerful of all is this guy, Sir Robert Walpole. Now, Walpole is, for a politician, a very interesting figure. He was landed gentry. He was a country squire from Norfolk. And all of his life, he sort of played up to this image of, yes, I'm just a rough-hewn countryman. You know, it's that sort of Farage stick. It's also a slightly the sort of Boris Johnson stick. You know, I say it like it is, you know. I'm a proper English yeoman. But, you know, he was from a wealthy family and he became the most powerful person in England. He probably became more powerful than George. The Whigs ended up running the country for nearly 50 years, from 1714 to 1760. And the era became known as the Whig supremacy. So for all that time, we basically had a one party state. And Walpole himself was in charge for nearly half that time. In 1721, he became first Lord of the Treasury, which is the most senior political position. And he stayed in that position for 20 years. And this is controversial. Not everyone approves of this. It does give us stability. But he is mocked in some of these pamphlets as, oh, look, he is styling himself as our prime minister, you know, the most important minister of all. And the name sticks. He effectively becomes the first prime minister like the word tory it was originally a kind of an insult they were taking the piss out of him and actually the post of prime minister it is not really an official position technically our prime minister is first lord of the treasury but we call them prime minister and maybe in a future episode i'll look at robert walpole because he he was an interesting man he was very much a big figure he was 20 stone And he's very much like our modern idea of what a politician is. He was the first prime minister, if we can call him that, to live in 10 Downing Street, for instance. The property had been gifted to him. And and really through the Hanoverian period, through the Georgian period, we get this shift of power away from the monarchy to Parliament. George did get involved in politics more than he is sometimes given credit for. But for a lot of the time, he is happy for the government to be running things. It's interesting that when George first went back to Hanover to deal with matters over there, he didn't appoint his son as Prince Regent. He didn't allow him 
to rule the country in his absence. He didn't trust him. He didn't like him. And this was their first big falling out. But George was happy to rely on Parliament to essentially run things. And it was a settled period. Scientists, artists, writers, playwrights, musicians flourished. George brought the composer Handel over to become the sort of court composer. He was interested in all this stuff. He didn't go to the theatre very much, perhaps once a year, which is understandable as he couldn't really speak English and so didn't understand what anyone was saying. A bit like a modern school kid attending a Shakespeare play. He did love the opera, though. He was sometimes dismissed as being stupid and a Philistine, but, but, but he doesn't seem to have been. He just wanted to keep a quiet life and mind his own business in many ways. Um, but it's th through this period that Daniel Defoe publishes Robinson Crusoe. Jonathan Swift publishes Gulliver's Travels. There's a lot of stuff created then that is still with us today. And I, and I think part of this is the stability that George managed to bring to the country, apart from this one big thing at the heart of it all, the bursting of the South Sea bubble. Now, I am going to try and get my head around this and your head around this. Some people have seen this as kind of like the birth of capitalism. And it's certainly it is an example of what goes on in the financial world that is still going on today. So we saw before how the Bank of England was set up during King William's reign. And the idea of the Bank of England was, and this was based on a French model and, and Dutch models, it's this one super bank. And essentially, it's an interesting way of looking at it, people lend money to the Bank of England. They pay money in, the Bank of England looks after it, but they are essentially borrowing it from people. Now, it's mostly large, wealthy investors, but anyone can put money into this. They then, depending on the interest rate, get money back from what they've put in. So on top of the money they put in, the bank pays them money back, Say, let's say at 8%. And the Bank of England, in turn, lends that money, or some of it, to the British government. They become the official lenders to government. So government is in debt to the bank, but the interest rate that the bank charges to the government is higher than what they charge to normal investors. So the money they lend to the government, let's say it's 10%. And as long as there isn't a run on the bank, everybody wants their money back. The bank is making a profit. The people putting money into the bank are making a profit. And the government is able to keep on running and raising armies and doing whatever it needs to do by borrowing money from the Bank of England. So as long as it's a stable system and people trust the bank... It should go OK. It is not run by the government or owned by the government. It is a private institution. So in George's reign, a rival group set themselves up as the South Sea Company. And this is a rival to the Bank of England. They're saying we're going to be a sexy, more glamorous, more profitable version of the Bank of England. But we're using that as the model again. The war of the Spanish succession had come to an end, so the idea was now they would be this trading bonanza with Spain, particularly in South America. But actually, the Treaty of Utrecht, which brought the war to an end, wasn't as favourable to the British as everyone had hoped. For instance, there had been this clause saying that the British were allowed to sell a certain number of slaves to the Spanish in South America annually, and the South Sea Company took over this 
Um, as it turned out, they didn't manage to sell any slaves. The Spanish just said, nah, we're not letting you. Trade didn't open up. The South Sea Company didn't really do any business at all. So it was very much this idea of a company set up as pretty much a financial fraud, you know. But if enough people put money into it, suddenly it becomes a very wealthy and successful company. Under the banner of the South Sea, there were all sorts of other companies that joined in and sort of got in on the act, sort of bolted themselves onto it. There was a company set up to import walnut trees from Virginia. There was another project to um, develop the Greenland fisheries. And there was even a company for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. <laughs> that sums up the financial world, really, in many ways. Um, you know, I, I had to confess, I have a superficial knowledge of how the banking system works and how stocks and shares works and government bonds and all this stuff. But, you know, I think I might try and do a whole separate episode on the birth of this system, the idea of paper credit, the idea that really none of this money exists. When the South Sea Company all fell apart, it was discovered that they didn't own even a single ship. There was nothing. It did nothing. But it encouraged everybody to put their money in it and if you put your money in at the start and sold within a few months you could make a big profit because so many people were putting money into this and also the the members of the south sea company were very corrupt they were bribing members of parliament saying look we'll give you shares in the company if you big us up and they went to george as well george bigged them up put money into it as did his two, inverted commas, mistresses, the fat one and the thin one, um, they were drawn into this. It was a huge charade. It was like the sort of pyramid selling scandals. As long as people keep putting money in, you can still keep giving dividends out and payments out. So if you got in at the beginning and sold quickly, you made a lot of money. Robert Walpole himself did this made him vast sums of money. He was able to build this huge country house back in Norfolk. And it became a frenzy. Everybody in London, first of all, the rich and the powerful were putting their money in it. And then when everyone else was saying, oh my God, they're all putting their money into this. I've got to get in on this. You know, it, it went down. People with less and less money were putting money into it. And they would take money out and they think, oh, I've got to do that again. And people were selling land, property, anything to get in on this 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 gold rush um and a bubble was created that got bigger and bigger and bigger and we've seen so many of these financial bubbles since that are not based on any kind of reality but it's based on wow this could make loads of money you know we've had the cryptocurrency bubble we've had the whole dot-com bubble everything is fine until someone spots the emperor's new clothes and the canny investors people who'd been in at the beginning people who understood how this worked and looked a bit more closely at what the South Sea Company was because they weren't doing anything except collecting people's money. They started to take their money out. Their friends thought, oi, oi, we need to do the same. A trickle becomes a rush, becomes a stampede of people taking money out. Robert Walpole was on the verge of putting more money in, but this chaos erupted and he wasn't able to. So he managed to save himself and his fortune. But many people didn't. 
This was like the Wall Street crash in the 20s. The whole financial system collapsed. One of the things the South Sea Company had done in an act of bravado and kind of, I guess, marketing, they said, we're going to take over the government debt. Yeah, we're so confident and so wealthy, we'll even do that. So the whole British economy collapsed. People were ruined, committing suicide left, right and centre. In some ways, it, it did shake up the traditional aristocracy, all these sort of wealthy landowners. A lot of them were no longer wealthy landowners. They'd sold the land to someone else temporarily. So, um, yeah, it shook up the whole system and it, and it could have been the end of this whole sort of modern system of banking and stocks and shares and finance. But there were enough people in government who hadn't been ruined, including Walpole, and they worked together with the Bank of England and with King George to stabilise things, although George and his two mistresses were implicated in the whole thing and it didn't look good for them. It was quite openly corrupt what had happened. But... Luckily, the powers that be managed to just about shore up the system. But as we know, it wasn't to be the last of these devastating bubbles. Anyway, it could have been the end of George's reign. It could have led to civil war. It could have led to all these things. But as I say, Walpole kind of took over the reins, sorted things out and kept the country from going bankrupt. And George carried on on the throne for another seven years. Until on one of his trips back to Hanover, he had a stroke and died in 1727. And they buried him there in Germany. I'm ambivalent about George, but I hope to get a clearer picture of him from my guest on this episode, a historian who's written a lot about the Georgians, Catherine Curzon. So make sure you keep listening after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back. And my guest on this episode is Catherine Curzon, who's written, well, she's written several books on the Georgians, as well as writing historical fiction, largely set during the Second World War. But Catherine's books on the Georgians include The Daughters of George III, The Elder Sons of George III, Kings of George and Britain, The Real Bridgerton, which we'll come on to later, Sophia, the Imprisoned Princess, The Scandalous Life of Sophia Dorothea of Sella, the Mistresses of George I and II, and Sophia, Mother of Kings, the finest Queen Britain never had. And that's a different Sophia. As ever, we're plagued by everybody having the same name in the Georgian era. So, actually, so Catherine, welcome on board. 
And perhaps that's a good place to start with George's mother, Sophia Electress of Hanover. Mm. She was um, the sort of dictionary definition of formidable. <laughs> um, she was the granddaughter of James VI. And she was very, very, very aware of that. And very aware that that gave her both cachet and a little bit of... Um, it's hard to describe because it wasn't sort of inherited political nas, but she was a very political woman, but she played it very quietly. She was married to a man called Ernest Augustus, who um, engineered Hanover from the electorate. And she knew that Ernest Augustus is quite a um, strong-minded character, that he was best influenced by stealth. So that's what she did. But she also, whilst influencing Ernest Augustus by stealth, she managed to get a very strong handle on her young son, George, which we see persisting for decades. And it only fell apart when it looked like she might be moving to England. But she was a really strong-minded woman. She had great ambition for the family that she'd married into and for her son. Mm. And it was an ambition that she shared with her husband. And together they were kind of a power couple, but she had a very strong grip on the domestic sphere and he had a very strong grip on the militaristic and political sphere of Hanover. So when did she first get a sniff that she might have a chance of actually becoming Queen of England? She was in middle age and she had some ambition early on that perhaps George could marry Queen Anne. This was before she got any indication that she might one day be in the line of succession. Right. So through George was her first way of thinking, all right, we can, we can marry yeah. the son into it. Yeah, because Hanover was in a very strange position. that Initially, it was split between four brothers. Mm. So obviously, this is not a great way to rule a duchy. So Ernest Augustus basically cajoled and, you know, bought up his brothers and conveniently a couple died, things like that, until he was going to inherit Hanover. He's going to be one day the elector. But she had much bigger ambitions, and because of her English blood, she wanted to see her family get back in there because mm. obviously England at the time, very powerful, much more powerful than Hanover. So she looked at marrying George to Queen Anne. It was never going to come off. He wasn't seen as important enough. He wasn't well-connected enough. And George wasn't incredibly likeable. So he didn't <laughs> have either. He didn't have that kind of immediate meet Anne and they fall in love and nothing will stand between them. He was just, even as a young man, he was very grumpy. He was very insular, and he just didn't engage people at all. Do you think a part of that was shyness? Yeah, I think there was that. Um, when he, he didn't trust easily. And right. when he did trust somebody, he kind of trusted them forever. Um, but it took him a long time to get there. He did have, though, this incredibly hot temper, which, you know, we say he didn't suffer fools gladly, but we see it in his, you know, in his marriage that he was, a, you know, quite an abusive husband. And there was a shyness to him, but I think as well, because he had been raised by his mother to kind of be the little prince, mm. that he had that as well. He had a very strong sense of who he was and what he wanted out of life. But, and I wonder as well if some of that shyness from George came from having this incredibly pushy dad who was, you know, he was almost like, you know, like a sitcom dad. Yeah. <laughs> Rusting. And encouraging his boys to get out and hunt. and A competitive dad. He was, 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. And he was very much the man in charge. And yeah. part of that, he didn't want to cede too much of his own influence to his son because we have that whole thing that we see later with George the First and his sons, that they always had that little fear that if they let mm. their sons get a foot in the door, the sons are going to elbow them out of the way. I know, it's a weird thing with the monarchs, isn't it? It's always yeah. like... Well, we've got to secure the position and make the sun strong. It's like, oh, no, the sun's getting too strong. Yeah. They're going to get rid of me. And it just happens time after time. Yeah, exactly. And it's quite interesting with it because Ernest Augustus was so massively ambitious. He had this massively ambitious mistress who caused all sorts of trouble. Yeah, it's his wife, Sophia, who kind of politically, to some degree, kept her head down, who ended up at the sort of turn of the century into, the, into 1700, right on the edge of suddenly being in the line of succession. And he's done all this moving and shaking over in Hanover, but it's his wife who just, you know, pops a dainty foot forward. <laughs> and suddenly she's potentially going to be the queen. You obviously have a lot of respect for George's mother, Sophia, as is shown by the subtitle of your book, The Finest Queen Britain Never Had. I mean, do you think the Hanoverians might have got off to a better start if Sophia had managed to get onto the throne before George? I think we would have seen, though, Potentially a, somebody who was able to engage much more with the public she was coming into than George was at first. Hmm. Um, because George was seen as so completely German, yeah, unapologetically Hanover. <laughs> and um, Sophia understood more than George, I think, that there was a lot of importance in playing up the other side of it, as George's um, son certainly did. You know, he went out of his way to appear English. Yeah, I think we would have seen Sophia maybe a more steady ship more quickly than we did with George. So she she'd waited a long time to try and get into the mm. the position in England. I mean, and George himself was well, he was in his fifties, wasn't he, when he came to the throne? He was, yeah. Um, and obviously, Sophia only died a couple of months um, before, and anyway, she missed out by just a few weeks. Mm. Um, yeah, and George came to the throne. He arrived in England, he brought most of his court with him, he brought his mistress with him, he left his ex-wife locked up, um, and he arrived in the mid-50s, set in his ways, not, you know, as you said, he was shy, not at all um, a people pleaser, not somebody who wanted to go out and get himself on show, Mm. Um, and he arrived in a country that quite a lot of it didn't really want him, (laughs) and therefore that kind of perceived standoffishness was just seen as he's, you know, he's importing his German ways and he's importing his German court. And what is he going to do? Hence, we see riots if coronation is quite uh. different to the coronation we just had. Um, <laughs> well, there were some people with placards. Which, yeah, it wasn't that different. Not my king. And he'd left behind in Hanover his wife locked up in a castle. It's ironic in a way because very few people actually know his wife's name, which is why I did want to write about her so much. Mm. But, yeah, the business with his wife is, it's another one of those weird things, though. It's absolutely extraordinary, but George's part in it is on the edge. Mm. It's kind of motivated by his father's mistress and by his father and by George's wife and her lover. And the picture of George is that he's off being playing happy families with his own mistress. They had three children together and they lived pretty much husband and wife. Yeah. But, yeah, so he married his cousin, um, and neither one of them wanted to get married, but it was very much to keep the sides of the Hanoverian dynasty together. Yeah. So one had the power, one brother had the power, one had the money. And the idea was if we marry them together, the sons and daughters, the power and money unite. Mm. So he married <laughs> Sophia Dorothea and legend has it that when her mother presented her with his portrait, she took one look at it and said, I will not marry this pig snout. <laughs> threw it across the room. 
Um, but she did marry him. And by all accounts, George's reaction to this arranged marriage was a kind of, you know, right? <laughs> it seemed to have been completely accepted that your wife was irrelevant. and, and But, you, you know, you have your pick of your mistresses and, <laughs> and nobody's going to make a fuss yeah. about it. And often the mistresses are sort of the wives of quite prominent men, aren't they? Yeah, um, George's mistress wasn't. Yeah. Um, George's mistress was the daughter of um, an ambitious, but quite as they quite often are, impoverished noble. Um, and after a bit of an aborted attempt to get her in at Versailles, he took his daughter, um, Melusine, instead to Hanover because it's awful to say, but there was less competition. Um, so Versailles was sort of like crammed full of glamorous gals. Whereas Hanover, there were less. Um, and he installed her as Sophia's lady-in-waiting, and she and George had lots in common. They were both really quiet. Melusine and George both liked to just sit and chat and read. Whereas George's wife was a total party animal. She was really glamorous. <laughs> She'd come from a duchy where she had been the most beautiful, the most celebrated. And her mum used to dress up in ribbons and diamonds and take her out in a carriage and show her off. And when she got to Hanover, George kind of said, yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> here, we, you know, we, we, we don't do any of that. We're quite quiet here. So it was a recipe for disaster. And it's one of those where when the dashing Count Conismark shows up, you know what's coming. Mm. Dashing war hero arrives and you know exactly what's on the horizon. <laughs> and she became in many ways a model for that sort of classic Mills and Boone style sort of romantic fantasy, the doomed princess with her dashing aristocratic lover. What was the name of the film based on her love affair with Konigsberg? Saraband for Dead Lovers. Saraband for Dead Lovers. Yes, now there's a name for a film. Now, I think it was Ealing Studios' first colour film and it starred Stuart Granger as the Count and the wonderful Joan Greenwood as Sophia. So Sophia did get her moment in the spotlight. Yes, she did. And there's lots of legends associated with her. Um, one of them being that Horace Walpole, who I'm sure you've come across. Well, I wasn't able to fit him in. But yes, yes, for our listeners, he was the son of Robert Walpole, uh, a politician like his dad, but also an author who wrote what is considered the first Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto. Very interesting figure, Horace Walpole, because he also wrote a huge number of letters and memoirs which are a major historical source for this period, aren't they, Catherine? Absolutely love Horace Walpole. He's such a gossip. Was told by someone that a soothsayer had told George I that if his wife died, he wouldn't outlive her by a year. And he was supposedly tormented by this. Um, but he wasn't so tormented by it that he didn't, you know, try to strangle her on one occasion and on another, um, you know, start to beat her up and have to be dragged off her. Because um, we have this weird thing, as you say, that the wives weren't important. So she began a very, very passionate, initially friendship, but then affair with Count Gubbankonismark. Um, yeah. Um, and we actually have some love letters they wrote. And, you know, when you read sort of like historical documents, it, it's all very lyrical. These aren't lyrical. These are like still. <laughs> um, you know, George's merrily... merrily father and three children with his mistress but she has this affair and he went berserk mm. absolutely berserk it wasn't because he loved his wife it was firstly a bit i think a bit of pride but it was secondly because obviously 
there's more at play here because Königsmark was allied with other courts um, and the electorates were always trying to get one up on each other. Mm. So if he had sort of somebody at the heart of Hanover who was, you know, one day George is going to be in charge there, it was seen that this could be both a massive embarrassment and if she ran away with her lover and went to another court, it could cause, you mm. know, a constitutional crisis because she had a lot of money and a lot of good connections. So better to either get Cunningsburg chopped up and put under the floorboards or dumped in the river. Yeah. <laughs> and as I say, ironically, it wasn't George that did it. It was um, yeah. his dad's mistress that did it. Now, mistresses play a big part in this story. You mentioned George's father's mistress there, with whom he had a daughter, confusingly, also called Sophie, Sophie Charlotte von Platten, who many people at the time accused of being one of George's mistresses. The big joke being that George arrived in England with two mistresses, one fat and one thin, the elephant Sophie and the maypole Melusine von der Schulenburg. But you've been very careful to say mistress singular when talking about George's affairs, that being Melusine. Yes, the elephant was the daughter of George's father and his mistress, Clara von Platten. Right. And the elephant is awful, isn't it? Saying that. Um, she was um, <laughs> Sophia von Kielmansegg, but although it was rumoured she was his mistress, she was really just a really, really, really close friend and influence. Yeah. Um, she was kind of, um, I think it was, I'm sure you've come across it, painted as the mistress because it, it was that kind of like, let's find a way to poke at the women. Yes. And obviously, yeah. the obvious way to poke at the women is to say they've got this weird incestuous relationship. Yes. Um, You're only in that position of power because you must be sleeping with yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. And um, his mistress, Melusine von der Schulenberg, she was the maypole because she was big and tall. And Sophia, his mum, actually described her as um, a great tall mawkin. <laughs> <laughs> like she used to make fun of her and call her the scarecrow. But, you know, Melusine, um, she's pretty inoffensive, to be honest. She was just there. Mm. She wasn't a schemer. She wasn't political, apart from when we get to South Sea Bubble. But, yeah, she was... Yes. But Ernest Augustus's mistress, Clara, she was a whole kettle of fish. So that's George's father's mistress. She really was ambitious. She engineered the rise of her husband to be a prime minister. She was an incredibly ambitious woman, described by one observer as like a spider at the heart of a great web. So all these powerful men are having children with their mistresses. George, I think you said he had three with Melusine, but he also had two children with his actual wife, one of them being his son and heir, George, the Prince of Wales. But there's this theme running through the Georgians, isn't there, that the fathers and the sons all mutually hated each other. Yeah, it was um, because of uh, George's treatment of um, his son's mother. So after the dissolution of the marriage... Um, George had um, his wife put away and basically kept under house arrest for 30 years. Mm. Um, and he didn't allow his children to see her. There's a legend of George II as a boy trying to swim across a river to get to his mum. <laughs> um, but he never, ever saw her again. That <laughs> sounds like a story that was made up by his PR department. It does, doesn't in it? In later life <laughs> to make him seem more interesting. <laughs> and he's, well, he's never allowed to mention her name. All um, right. He resented his father for this forever. And of course, then we have when George II, as Prince of Wales, had to come to England with the newly enthroned George I, George I made him leave his own son behind. 
Yeah. And so it continues. But what's an interesting thing about this is on the day that George I died, so George II succeeded to the throne, mm. he hung his mother's portrait. And then he came to Hanover and he read through letters that his mother had left after her death. Um, and apparently then burned the letters, burned the portrait and never mentioned her again. So make of that what you will. Well, I suppose if they were like her filthy letters to Konigsberg, nobody wants to believe their mother ever had a sex life. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I find it very difficult to get a clear picture of George because there's this fog of gossip and propaganda and xenophobia and misinformation and politics getting in the way. So I can't really get a handle on him. I mean, a lot of people have said he was basically just stupid. But it's great when I get approached by younger people, but a couple of younger people have approached me who know him from horrible history. Yes. My take on it is always, oh, he was the, like, slightly dumb German. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, you know, I honestly think you hit the nail on the head with talking about him being a little bit shy and introverted. And also, you know, not everyone is an incredible social butterfly. Mm. And... Very early on, his very early biographers got right in there with this kind of, he was a bit of a dunderhead mm. and it stuck. But in the last, I'd say, yeah, 50 years or so, there started to be a little bit more interrogation as to what part he actually played as king. Obviously, he didn't last all that long um, and it wasn't the most successful reign. But I think it's where we've lost a lot of George because not much of him remains. Mm. We don't have huge amounts of his own papers And because he did come from a relatively obscure place, quite a lot of his early life, because he wasn't initially seen as going to be the king. Yeah. So we don't have that wealth of material. You know, when someone's going to be king, they're kind of chronicled from birth. But with George, we don't have that. We just have a lot of hearsay and a lot of either way prejudiced opinions about Mm. when he was growing up. But I mean, the very fact that he managed to hold on to the throne until he died as a German interloper who was not popular when he arrived. I mean, that must say something about him. Or or was that down to people like Walpole holding it all together? Walpole did an amazing job of holding it together. Um, Yeah. And I think as well that once somebody is on the throne, as we know, it's quite hard to get them off. Mm. So... I think that although he was strong-minded, he did know his limits and he knew that when it came to the British political system that you had to play it really carefully. So though his initial administration was very Whig-heavy, he sprinkled it with Tories. He always tried Mm. to some degree to keep both sides sweet. And when he had to make compromises, he did it. We've seen other kings, and I know you have because you've done an entire history of the monarchy, that who, you know, to the with catastrophic effects, dug their heels in. Yes. But when George, you know, the South Sea Bubble Boom, great example, when he was out of his depth and he had to give it over to someone who could save the day, he did it. Because what he really wanted, what he liked most of all, was quiet life. Mm. Well, let's just talk about the South Sea Bubble. It was a very steady and secure reign in which nothing much happened except for yes. the entire collapse of the whole economic system. Um, and how, you know, how much was he implicated in that how corrupt was it or uh, i mean you just talk me through the involvement of him and melusine and sophia his friend his very good friend daughter of his father's mistress because they were all implicated in scandal and corruption they were and it's one of those things although the mistresses would arrange 
to get you close to George's ear. They weren't very political, so Melusine wasn't really interested in politics. So there were Sarah Ferguson figures. Yes, that's <laughs> it. They were. They were the brown envelope figures. But this was the one where Melusine really came unstuck. Um, because this South Sea Company had this great idea that they would, after the War of Spanish Succession, that they were so convinced that England would get preferential treatment when peace was declared, that they would have a complete monopoly on the slave trade in the Americas. Um, so they offered to underwrite the entire national debt of the country um, at a 5% interest rate. Now, the national debt was about the equivalent of 30 million or so. So it was a, a good deal. But obviously when peace was declared and the Treaty of Utrecht, they didn't get what they wanted and they essentially got a tiny piece of the trade, which was never going to make enough money to pay off what were enormous numbers of shares that were being sold because this was one of those deals you know, like you get those spam emails, it's too good to miss. Yes, yes. Everybody from the richest oh. to the poorest started buying up shares. Mm. And the South Sea Company um, handed out a lot of shares to um, the, I was going to say the elephant, the maypotion, <laughs> to Sophia and to Melusine. And because of that, they were seen as quite legitimate. So Sophia and mm. Melusine started telling the courtiers this is a great deal. And Melusine convinced George to become the governor of the South Sea Company. All right. So whilst George himself wasn't involved in it in any sort of corrupt way, he was the figurehead of it. He was the man whose okay. name was above the title, which amazingly, given how unpopular he'd been a few years earlier, suddenly everybody in England went, ooh, this must be a good thing. <laughs> if the king so it lent the king's it that, involved. Exactly. It lent it that real legitimacy that, this is a company that's, you know, they bought the national debt, so they're really enmeshed with the government. They must be trustworthy. And the king supports it. So, again, they must be doubly trustworthy. Mm. Um, in that way, I guess, you know, that now you see something that's got a sort of celebrity figurehead. And if it all goes wrong, the celebrity figurehead sort of scrambled to go, I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So George is over in Hanover, um, living it up, you know, um, everything's going really well in England. At which point the governors, the other board members of the South Sea Company, very quietly, because they know the company can't meet its financial obligations, start to sell off their shares. All right. So did, did they start the run themselves? They started the run themselves because word got out that they were trying to offload the shares while they still had a good prime. Oh, God. And obviously everybody that had a share went, oh, my God, <laughs> and started selling and the bubble, as we say, burst. And then what happened to them? Did they get away with it? Did they try and escape the country, the governors? Um, they pretty much, to some degree, got away with it. Um, there were some that were punished, um, but George panicked and handed over control to Walpole because Walpole, right. of course, being the great movement, speaker, said, I can sort this out. You leave it with me. Um, and he did. And it was very select that he. some people were punished other people that probably should have been weren't because, you know, as we know from Walpole, he was really good at storing up what could be useful for his career later on. Mm. So some people kind of got lightly off the hook because they helped later on with his career. Because the company did survive, didn't it? It didn't shut down. No, it didn't. Um, it just kept limping on. Um, but we see, you know, real collapse. Like we see suicides because of it. 
one of the big sort of figures that was seen as a real casualty of it was Earl Stanhope, the first Lord of the Treasury. And he had made a kind of like mea culpa statement in Parliament and he collapsed and he died of a stroke. But it was later suggested by some that the stroke wasn't because of the stress and the gallantry of of stepping up to the plate. It was because he'd been on a 13 hour booze bender the night before. (laughs) The company limped along and the real casualties of it were just like, you know, like, you and I, like the people in the street who had kind of hung everything on this hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the making of Robert Walpole. And it was also the thing that really once and for all stopped George in his tracks when it came to anything political, getting involved in anything. He was so yeah. scared at this point that he just went, all right, I'm just, I'm just going to be a king. I'm just going to hunt. So, and so was that fish. a real, a real power shift away from the power of the money? monarchy into the power of yeah, the politicians and and the, and the prime minister now almost becomes a more important figure than the monarch well obviously this is where we see Walpole as you know becoming de facto the first prime minister mm. um and it was the first time i think that we see the prime minister almost sort of handed power by a monarch who just couldn't do it and you know as you'll know because of your work on this that there's been times when the monarch should have done that yes doesn't but George I think he had no appetite for this battle and I think he did know that he just couldn't do it and Walpole could and of course Walpole was very good at letting people know what he couldn't couldn't do Um, and yeah and it's where we see a real power shift and it was one that would really gather speed throughout the Georgian reign until you know we see that the monarch really having very little power indeed but I it kind of starts here yeah just finally, um, on a lighter note, <laughs> the Bridgerton books and TV series and their various spin-offs have sort of made the Georgians sexy in a way that perhaps <laughs> no one expected. And one of the books you've written is The Real Bridgerton. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, Bridgerton is something that whenever people talk to me about it, which they do frequently. Yeah, sorry um, to bring it up. It always comes down, <laughs> it, no, no, it always comes down to sex and scandal. Yes. So I just want to sort of assemble a little compendium um, of some sex and scandal that was way more scandalous than anything Bridgerton had. <laughs> um, so the real Bridgerton. And perhaps more true to life. More true to life. The real Bridgerton <laughs> is a romp. Through the bedrooms of um, the four King Georges and their subjects and just sort of like teasing out some of the best and most eyebrow-raising scandals um, from all of their reigns, just to show that it didn't all happen in the Regency, that all of the Georgians were a little bit Mm. into it, as it were. Well, that's a great recommendation to read your book. I mean, I was going to say, had any of your books been used as historical reference for the series, but... From what I've seen of it, I don't think they did use any historical reference. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know, I've always said that that Bridgerton, you kind of have to take it as like a Fantasia. Yeah. That it's like planet Bridgerton, you know. It's a bugbear of mine, which I've talked about with many of my guests. In fact, I've talked about it so much, I usually end up cutting it out. But I get irritated by historical drama series where they always try to say, oh, look, they're just like us. Look how relevant it is to the contemporary world. And I don't think they always were just like us. I would much rather see the differences than the similarities. 
it kind of like you know they've got like taylor swift music and yeah that kind of thing it's just like there was so much good stuff that was true and so much stuff that was true that was way more dramatic and way more exciting there's a line in amadeus when he says people so lofty we actually say shit marble and that's what i think we think about history that oh they can't have done anything we have to dramatize it make it modern we have to modernize it to make it interesting mm. but we really don't like you know like we there's such cool stuff like melusine with her pet raven that she thought was george's ghost and all that kind of thing <laughs> There's all this really cool stuff that we don't really need them dancing to Katy Perry and talking yes. about. You know, it's, it's great that it's bringing people into Georgian history, but at the same time, there's so much good Georgian stuff. That's not to say, of course, that the likes of Bridgerton are not highly entertaining in their own way, and people have really enjoyed watching these shows. So, Catherine, thank you very much for joining me today. And if any of our listeners are particularly interested in finding out about George I, which would you say would be the best of your books to start with? Kings of George and Britain. It's a primer introduction to all four kings. And I like to think paints a portrait of George is a little bit more than just a sigh in human form. And is a bit more in-depth than the horrible histories for George's boy band song. <laughs> That's a bit longer. I've really enjoyed finding out a bit more about George. And thank you so much for also painting that picture of him for me. It's been great. So that was Catherine Curzon, and I hope I can lure Catherine back to talk about one of the other Georges in a later episode. In the meantime, we have George II coming up, the last British monarch to lead an army into battle, and the king who finally quashed the Jacobite threat when his army, under the command of one of his sons, defeated Bonnie Prince Charlie at the Battle of Culloden. Make sure you join me for the next instalment of this extraordinary story. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024.